Hello to all you subscribers to the Word on the Hill podcast. My name is Dr. Scott Powell. And Father Peter Musset and I want to give you guys a Christmas gift. A few weeks ago, we taught a class here at the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in Boulder called Christ in the Stars, in which we explored the scriptural and the historical and the astronomical events that surrounded Christ's nativity. Really how all of scripture and all of nature spoke together to announce the birth of the Messiah. Well, because so many of you have requested it and asked us about it, we'd like to give you guys the gift of the recording of the entirety of that class that we taught. So included now in this podcast is part one, session one, that was recorded on November 23rd of 2016. So without further ado, please enjoy part one of our class, Christ in the Stars. Tonight, we are beginning the first part of a two-part series about finding Christ in the stars. And we're going to divide these two sessions tonight and then next Wednesday, same place, same time. We're going to divide it up uh, by one very easy principle, space and time. We have a physicist who just freaked out. So... This is it, which is, it's just glorious. And, and it's, it's like the two things, that in a certain sense, um, as we get older, sometimes we can lose our awe and wonder in relationship to what space and time are. You, the mystery that we are plunged in as we go through our daily lives is more profound than we give time to, give credit to what we're experiencing as we go through this world. So tonight, we're going to focus on time. Time uh, and how, how we go through it, specifically around um, some events that have taken place within time. Scott and I have been preparing, and um, as we were going through and looking at what was happening, he has opened my mind to something that is so exciting uh, that... that that I, I really kind of, I, I'm really in awe of what God is doing between us in theology. Uh, somebody once said to me recently, they said, uh, you know, a fantasy is something that you need no one else for. A dream demands other people. And uh, the, the dream of being able to contribute to the whole world, one verse, one little moment, one idea, that can help another person encounter Jesus Christ is the most exciting proposition that I have in my own life. And so we're going to go through uh, and, and talk about time tonight. And time in, in, in the relationship, uh, in relationships, uh, in this dream that God is actually going to pour out because he propels us into community. He doesn't isolate us. That's not what, that's not what God is wanting to do. Now, we're not going to do this in a specifically academic mode either. This is going to be academic and content. Uh, and in fact, I actually have never heard anybody in my walk speak of what we're going to be talking about in the next two weeks. Um, it's actually new. I think that that's what's so exciting, is that the mysteries of God are never plunged entirely. We can keep going into the mystery of God and see more and more and more until literally we, um, are, we will always be in that state. That is what heaven is, is that it's the continual unfolding of the mystery. And so while we're in time, we uh, experience a tremendous amount of change, a tremendous amount of relationships. So 
I'm going to uh, open it up tonight's format. Uh, Scott is going to uh, speak about the substantial portion of this evening. Next week, you're going to get me for a little bit more of a substantial portion uh, when we in engage in space and what, what is happening within space. And then um, at the end of it, I'm going to actually experience, I'm going to give a little bit of uh, at the end, uh, speaking about another set of relationships that's going to help us contextualize and experience Christ anew. And that's what we're longing for. And then, of course, we're going to be able to have a little bit of a conversation at the end uh, to talk about some of these ideas. Uh, it is just absolutely wonderful, and I'm so thankful that all of you are here. And I'd like to invite uh, Dr. Scott Powell to address you. Thanks, Father. Father Peter's all cool, and I feel like the nerd with my books. This cool sweatshirt on. Um, one of the things that I think... We don't have the market cornered on this. And as Father Peter and I have been going through some of this stuff, some of it's old to both of us, some of it's new to both of us, it's been really fun to kind of bounce ideas off of each other. But what we've kind of come to, again, Catholics haven't cornered the market on understanding the nativity story. And what we're going to talk about, again, in time, in space, really the, the heart of the matter is that matter is at the heart of things. That was a pun... A, a, Pithy saying I didn't mean to come out of my mouth, but I'm a dad, so I say those things. But Catholics have an understanding of the material world that I think gives us a particular insight into things that some of the rest of our Christian friends might not always see. Um, we take in a lot of the insights that we're going to share with you from some amazing Protestant scholars. But I do believe that it's our Catholic formation, our Catholic worldview, which is very material. It's, it's nitty gritty. There's the stuff of life that has kind of exploded our minds to some things. One of the things, so I grew up in Boulder. This is my hometown. Went away for a number of years, came back. But one of the things that always speaks of Christmas to me, I mean, more, probably more than any other image for me in my personal life that speaks of Christmas is when that star gets lit up on Flagstaff Mountain. And it, it seems like they always change what day it starts and what day they lie. I think it's Veterans Day this year, but it used to be Thanksgiving when I was growing up. But it was always this just marker that now it's time. And I, you know, we live in Louisville now, and I can, you can kind of see it from everywhere in Boulder County, which I just absolutely love. And there's something that, and I know that, you know, explicitly, Boulder doesn't put up a big star to remind us of Christmas. But at the same time... There's a big stinking Christmas star above the city of Boulder. You can't get around to that. It's just there speaking of this reality. It's tangible. It's lit up. It's bright. It's visible from everywhere. And it reminds us of what season that we're in. No matter what time of year they want to light it and, and unplug it every year, it still is there in Advent and at Christmas. And it speaks to that. And there's something so profound. I remember when I was in... I shouldn't share this. It's already coming out, though. Um, I was in high school... And I remember one night, it speaks to the importance of this. That one night, you know, we were punks in high school, and I came to know the Lord better later. But I remember being in high school, and you know, the cool thing to do in Boulder is to go up and hike to the star. And so it was late one night, and we all went up Flagstaff, and we hiked up to the star, and it was really neat. And we were having a snowball fight. And of course, I slipped on some snow. And if you've, have you ever been up to the star? It's pretty steep up there, especially when there's snow and ice. And I slipped, and you know, it's just reaction, knee-jerk reaction. I reached up. And I got a pole, and the pole led me to a string, and the string snapped, and a bunch of fireballs went off around my head. And before I knew it, the star was out. <laughs> and so as a good high school kids, our response was, of course, run. run. <laughs> Get to the car. 
So we got out of there as fast as we could. And, you know, we, we ended up going to somebody else's house and we met up with some other friends. And we kept hearing, everyone's like, did you guys see the star? Some jerks put out the star. <laughs> but you could tell everybody knew. The star went out and Boulder was aware and they were mad about it, which there's something really good about that, isn't there? But this is a big deal. And I remember, this is the last part of the story. I woke up the next morning. Again, I'm in high school. I was on Christmas break. And I went upstairs to the kitchen. My mom was reading the Daily Camera. And she was like, huh. The headline on the front, it must have been a slow news day, but the headline was that it said literally hooligans put out a star. And my mom held it up and she was like, do you see this? And she had that look. She's like, I know you did this. I know, I know you well enough. And, but there's just, so that, that's a, a small anecdote. Just to speak to the fact that symbols matter. Material things matter. Things that we can see and look at and touch and smell and taste and all the rest of it, they actually matter, which is why God becomes incarnate in time. God becomes incarnate in space. And it isn't it interesting that when the Messiah of the world is born, even the stars, even the cosmos are speaking to that reality. That is not a coincidence. It's not a mistake. And as Father Peter is going to point out, the world took notice of that. The world took notice of that. But to back it up a little bit, we want to talk about time tonight. And one of the best measuring sticks of time, as far as the nativity story is concerned, is the scripture itself, which is kind of my, my love and my, my expertise. And Father Peter's going to get into a little bit more of the science of it, which I find fascinating because it's not my area of expertise. But what we want, where we get the Christmas story, as we know it, the nativity stories come mainly from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke. And I want to talk a little bit about the Gospel of Luke, because Luke is a crazy gospel, and it's incredibly interesting. And Luke is set up like a Shakespearean play, and I love Shakespeare. And the way that Shakespeare tends to set up his plays is before the main character is ever introduced, you have a whole chorus of background characters that come out and sort of set the stage and lay down the foundations for the main characters that are going to come. And that's exactly how Luke lays out his gospel. It is very intricate and well done and, and merits some attention. And the way that he sets this up is profound. There are two annunciations in Luke. Now, most of you are Catholic, maybe not everybody, but when we hear the word the annunciation, what do you think of? What's the annunciation? Gabriel came to Mary and says, you're going to have a child. Well, in Luke's gospel, there's two annunciations. Do you know what the other one is? Zechariah and Elizabeth, who give birth to John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, right? It's very interesting. The background chorus of characters that prepare the way in the Gospel of Luke for Jesus, for us to recognize, are actually three sets of couples. And some of you may have heard me talk about this in the past, but there's three couples. They're not all married, but there's three sets of a husband and a wife. The very first people you're introduced to in the Gospel of Luke, which is, again, where we get the bulk of the Christmas story. This is where we're told of all this stuff, the star, and the shepherds and the magi. There's a little bit in Matthew as well, but the, the inn and what there was no room for Jesus and all these details, they come to us from Luke. But the beginning of Luke, we're introduced to a couple. It's Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then about a chapter or so later, we're introduced to another couple, Mary and Joseph. And then a little less than a chapter later, we're introduced to another man and woman. They're not married, but it's two prophets, Simeon and Anna. And those three couples, those three pairs, set the stage for everything. 
And I've always sort of known, well, for a while I've known this since I've started studying this, but we came to a new insight in the last couple of days that sort of blew that whole thing wide open. And I started to see why exactly Luke is doing that. So to get there, let's start at the beginning. I'm going to start with these first two couples. If you have a Bible, open it up with me to Luke chapter 1. If you don't, uh, look onto the Protestant next to you um, who brought theirs. <laughs> Sorry, it's such a lame joke. Uh, it's in the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and I want to start in verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. It says this. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. I think it's interesting that in the very beginning of his book, Luke is already situating you in time. He's already reminding you that this matters when this happened. Jesus could have become incarnate to any group of people in any period of time, anywhere in the world that he wanted to. But he chose one particular culture, a particular group of people, in a particular place, in a particular time. This is why I keep harping on this with Father Peter, because I'm fascinated by it. Does anyone ever go to Midnight Mass? I remember I, we have little kids now, so we do the Midnight Mass at four. But, you know, growing up, I remember go, always going to Midnight Mass. My parents would, it was before I knew what was going on, they would drag us there. And I remember half the church was asleep. You could smell wine on everybody. And, but, but there was something just, even as a little kid, just kind of magical about it. Because you're up at midnight, and there's this incense, and there's lights, and it's just, it was fascinating. And there was something so mystical about Midnight Mass. Does anyone know how Midnight Mass begins? It begins unlike any other Mass in the liturgical year. How does Midnight Mass begin? Anyone remember? Not in the darkness. That's uh, the Easter Vigil. The long timeline thing. It's called the Roman Martyrology. But it's that long thing they read in the 26th year of Tiberius and the 17th Olympiad and the blah, 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 blah. And it goes on and it kind of gets long and a little bit boring as you're tired at midnight. But what the church is doing is reminding us that time matters. It matters what's happening in the world because God is a God of the material world. God is a God of his people. God is a God who becomes incarnate and walks among us. And it matters who the king is. It matters who the governor is. It matters what year of the Olympics it is, for Pete's sake. That's what the church is trying to drill into your mind, that God became one of us in time and in space. And that's amazing because no one in human history saw that coming. And it matters what year he did it. Because he could have chosen any time, but he chose then. So Luke is setting you up in the days of Herod. And Herod was not a well-loved king. So Luke is basically saying in the battle days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest, and his name was Zechariah. He was the division of Abijah. And he had a wife who was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. They walked in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. They were blameless. But they had no child. This is verse 7. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Okay, take a step back for a second. What do we know so far, according to Luke, about Zechariah and Elizabeth? What do we know about them? They're, they're not actually, well, they're probably not that old. They're probably in their 40s. Because you can only be a Levitical priest until, I think, 48 or 49. So, they're not that old. What do you, they were what? righteous but barren? They were righteous but barren. That's actually a big deal for Luke. If you notice, Luke goes out of his way to point out how righteous they are. Not just that they're righteous, they're righteous, they're blameless, they walk in the commandments, they're perfect, they're great. He's going out of his way to point all this out to you because they're barren. And the understanding, now this is not from the Bible, but the cultural understanding was if you didn't have children, if you were barren, you probably did something wrong. What did you do to deserve it? That's what the culture would often say. And so Luke knows that if somebody's reading this and they hear about this couple who's barren, the first response is, what's wrong with them? What did they do? 
And he wants to make perfectly sure that you know they did nothing. They are righteous, they are blameless, they walk with God. They did nothing to deserve this in a sinful way. So they're barren, they're really righteous. What else do we know about them? Anything else that you caught? They're both from priests. So Zechariah says is a priest. But if you notice, it said Elizabeth was from the sons of Aaron, which actually means she's from the priestly family as well. So they're both from the priestly caste, so to speak, which is important. They're really righteous. He's from this thing called the division of Abijah. There were 24 divisions of priests. There's a lot of priests in Jesus' time. But because there were so many of them, not everybody could serve in the temple at the same time. And priests actually had other jobs in the, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. It wasn't a career thing. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, remember, they live out in the hill country of Judea because Mary goes and visits Elizabeth later on. So two weeks out of every year, each division would come up to Jerusalem and they would perform their priestly duties for a week at a time. This is Zechariah's week. And he comes to Jerusalem and he's doing his job. And what happens is interesting. It's in verse 8. It says, now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, it fell to him by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And all the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the door at the hour of incense. Now, to most of us, especially those of us who are Catholic, that probably doesn't sound like that big of a deal. Okay, a priest goes in, offers incense. Okay, we see that all the time. But in Zechariah's time, for a priest, remember, it says they cast lots for what job each of them was going to have. And Zechariah got the lot that said, you're going to offer incense. Which again, doesn't sound like that big of a deal to us. But for Zechariah, this was the most important day of his life. Because when you got to offer the incense as a priest, you could never do it again. You were only permitted to do it once in your lifetime. And most priests never got the opportunity to do it. And the reason it's such a big deal is because if you got to offer the incense, that means you got to go into the temple right next to what was called the Holy of Holies which was where they believed the presence of God actually dwelt. You got to go closer to the presence of God himself than any other human being alive. Except for the high priest who got to go in once a year. He got to do that. So in the most important moment of Zechariah's life, he's there offering incense. And it says outside all the people were praying, and he was praying on behalf of them. What the priest who offers incense does is offer the corporate prayer of the nation of Israel. Incense, Revelation says later on, is like our prayers rising up before God. So Zechariah, in the most pivotal moment of his life, is offering the prayer of the people of Israel. And in that incredibly significant moment, an angel appears, right? It says in verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled, rightly so, when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and he will call his name John. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer is heard. What do you think the prayer of Zechariah that has just been heard was? What is that? Most of you said, and I set you up, most of you said, who said something, that he was praying for a child, because he's barren, right? He wants to be a dad, rightly so. But what is he doing at that moment? On behalf of Israel. He's offering Israel's prayer. Not his, I'm sure his personal prayer is in there. What do you think the prayer that Israel is praying is? There's a backstory to this. When is the Messiah coming? Israel's in a pretty bad way. Luke pointed it out by saying in the days of Herod. Remember that guy who claimed to be king but wasn't really a king? when Caesar was lording over us, when we were being persecuted and oppressed, and we'd lost our land, and we didn't have a king. 
and things were awful. And all of us were saying, how long, O Lord, until you're going to save us? Because the Old Testament was clear that someday God would step in and set things right for Israel. They would have a king again. They would be a people again. They would have their land. God would rescue them from this terrible fate that they're in. The prayer of Israel is, how long, O Lord? That's what Zechariah is offering the prayer for. How long? And an angel appears and says, guess what? Your prayer is heard. And Zechariah is a little flipped out. What does he do? He says, he describes the son who's going to be a part of this. But if you jump down to verse 18, it says, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Well, you're saying I'm going to have a son? You're saying all these things are being answered? How can I know this? For I'm an old man, again, probably late 40s, and my wife is advanced in years. How am I supposed to know that what you say is true? You say that this is the moment. You say that I'm going to have a son, and my son is going to be a part of this pivotal moment in Israel's history. How can I be sure? What's the angel's answer? Anyone see it? I'm Gabriel. Boom. <laughs> That's it. That's all he says. Mic drop. Which is a strange answer, isn't it? I'm Gabriel. It'd be like Father Peter getting on an RTV bus, just not paying. And the bus driver would be like, who do you think you are? What, what, are, you, what are you doing? He'd be like, I'm Father Peter. <laughs> it's not a very... You can do that, I guess. But it's a strange answer. But for Zechariah, I guarantee you he would have known exactly what that signaled. Okay. I'm Gabriel. That's the answer. This is the setup for everything that the birth of Jesus is going to fulfill and bring to a head, really, and why time matters. The last time Gabriel, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, unless I'm missing something, is only mentioned four times in the entire Bible. Four times. Gabriel. We know Gabriel. He's a big deal, right? We've heard of him all the time. He's mentioned here with Zechariah. He's mentioned with Mary in the second enunciation. And he's mentioned in the book of Daniel twice. So go back with me. Again, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Now remember, Israel. This people, by the time of Jesus, by the time of Zechariah, they're suffering under a really heavy burden of oppression and persecution, and things are not the way that they're supposed to be. God promised that Israel was supposed to be a light to the nation, right? A light to the nations, a people, a city set on a hill, a nation of priests. By the time of Jesus, all of those things have kind of fallen apart because the nation of Israel, the great kingdom of David, had lost her way had fallen into tremendous sin and had been basically obliterated and sent off into exile. In uh, the year 586, 587 BC, the nation of Babylon came in and literally obliterated Jerusalem, the temple, and what was left of the Jewish people and hauled those who survived off into exile in Babylon. For Babylon, right? They hauled them off to Babylon. Daniel, who's a famous prophet, we may have heard of Daniel before, Daniel... Babylon had a weird immigration strategy. Actually, I guess it was fairly logical. They would go into a place that they conquered. They'd find all the people sort of of the white collar, you know, the, the businessmen, the doctors, the lawyers, the upper class, and they would take them and all put them to work in their empire. And everybody else they would either put into slavery or kill. But they wanted the people they considered the good people. Daniel was of the upper crust, right? So they wanted Daniel. Daniel was a good administrator. He was a businessman. So they put him to work in the court of the king. So Daniel was living this kind of decent life in a terrible situation. And Daniel, in a scene of chapter 9, Daniel 
He's that one, remember, who was thrown into the fiery furnace because he refused to bow down and worship Babylon's gods, who worshiped Nebuchadnezzar, who claimed to be a god. He was just a man. This is Daniel. In chapter 9, it says Daniel, well, let's just read it. If you're there, it's in chapter 9, verse 20. If you're not there, just listen. Chapter 9, verse 20, it says, Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, this one evening, I was speaking and praying, I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. I was presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision earlier, came to me in swift flight at the hour of evening sacrifice. That's the hour where, if Jerusalem was still standing... A priest would be offering the incense. At that very same hour, Daniel sees Gabriel. What is Daniel doing? It says he's offering his prayer and the prayer of Israel, the prayer of his people. And he said, he came and he said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of your, of your prayers, a word went forth, and I've come to tell it to you, for you're greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. His question is, his prayer is, if you read the rest of the chapter, how long, O oh Lord? We've been hauled off in exile. We've lost our kingdom. Our temple's gone. How long are we going to be in slavery? And the angel shows up and says, hey, I'm Gabriel. Guess what? <laughs> Verse 24. I'm spending too much time with Father Peter. <laughs> Verse 24, it says, 70 weeks of years are decreed concerning your people and your holy city to finish the transgression for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. You want to know how long your people are going to be in exile? You want to know how long until God steps in and set, sets things right, forgives everything, restores you as a people? It says 70 weeks of years are decreed. What the heck is 70 weeks of years? Can't the Bible just give us plain numbers, right? <laughs> Bible language. 70 weeks of years. What do you think that means? 70. 70 makes sense, but what is a week? Seven days. Seven days, right? Hebrew, the Hebrew people, oftentimes numbers were more, uh, uh, they represented, they were more qualitative than quantitative. That's what I'm trying to say. And they didn't have numerals in their language. So numbers had a great deal of weight to them. 70 weeks, what that's saying, if a week is seven days, essentially what the angel is saying is 70 times seven years are decreed which is actually pretty darn specific. What is 70 times seven? Anybody do quick math? 490, 490 years. <laughs> so the angel Gabriel, that was quick. The angel Gabriel says, okay, you wanna know how long this is gonna happen. You've been hauled off into slavery. Things are gonna get kind of ugly. You're gonna suffer. Till when? Till 490 years are complete. Daniel is given a pretty specific time frame. Well, if you take 490 years from around the time this is happening to Daniel, guess where that places you? Squarely in the time of Jesus. This is why, you know, in the time of Jesus, a couple decades, some of you who have come to these classes where they, I'm like a broken record saying this, a couple decades before Jesus, nobody was claiming to be a Messiah. A couple decades after Jesus, no one was claiming to be a Messiah. In the time of Jesus, there were thousands of false messiahs. Everyone's saying, I'm the one. No, I'm the one. Because everybody knew when the Messiah was coming. This is no coincidence of history. Everyone knew when God was going to do this in 490 years. So we're right around that time frame. I actually think, this is a topic for another time, if you do the math from the decree that the king makes in Daniel's time, 
490 years hence, I think it actually places you exactly in the year 33 AD, which is the year of crucifixion traditionally. Anyway, that's a, that's a bit of an aside. But we're in this time frame. We're in the window. And Zechariah is praying for the people. He's saying, how long? Just as Daniel prayed at the hour of evening sacrifice, when the hour of the incense would be offered on behalf of his people, asking how long Zechariah stands in the same spot. And an angel comes and says, you know it because I'm Gabriel. I'm the one that laid out the time frame. And I bet Zechariah's mind was blown at that moment. And he's actually silenced for a while. Because he struggled with this. He didn't have the same, you know, Mary, when the Annunciation happened, she has some fear and a lot of trepidation. Zechariah seems to be like, you've got to be kidding, right? <laughs> it's a bit of a difference here. But this is the case. This is what lands us. This is how Zechariah knows Something big is about to happen, and my son is going to be a part of it. Something big is going to happen, and I'm going to be a part of it. Again, what do we know about Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth? We know that they're priests, or at least they're from the priestly line, right? One of the things I find fascinating about the Gospel of Luke, it's a very Catholic gospel. Well, they're all Catholic, but, <laughs> but sorry, as far as uh, kind of an ethos, there's a lot of re ironic reversals in Luke. Luke is a book of reversals. There's two annunciations in Luke. About less than a chapter later, you get the second annunciation, which is to this little peasant girl named Mary. We know she's a peasant because we know what kind of offering her and Joseph offer at the temple, which is the offering of the poor. She's about 14, 13, 14, 15, we're not exactly sure, who lives in Nowheresville, Nazareth. There's nothing really that significant about this town in the ancient world. And the angel Gabriel, the same one who appears to the great Daniel, who appears to Zechariah, the priest in the temple. He appears to this girl. And he gives another announcement. Now, just logically speaking, you get two announcements. One is given to a priest in the temple in the holy city at the hour of sacrifice. The other is given to a peasant girl who's like 12 years old in Nowheresville, Nazareth. Which do you expect is going to be the more important announcement? The temple with the priest and the big deal, right? Which is the secondary one? the one to the big, important priest of the temple. The much more important one comes to the person who we'd least expect it to come to. Because this is how God works. He likes to reverse our expectations. He likes to do the opposite of what we think is going to happen. So we get another announcement to Mary. What do we know about Mary? We know she's betrothed to a guy named Joseph. What do we know about Joseph? Well, we know about Joseph, and we get this mainly from the Gospel of Matthew, which is the other source for the Christmas story is that Joseph is the descendant of King David, which means Joseph is royalty. In the Gospel of, I don't want to get into this because this is, it's really interesting, but a little detailed. There's two different genealogies in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. Scripture scholars love to wrestle over this and point out contradictions and say, this doesn't make any sense. But there's one genealogy of Jesus, his ancestry, his family tree, given in Matthew, and there's a totally different one given in Luke. And scholars have wondered, why are they different genealogies? Well, we know, you know, they're both kind of highlight reels of important figures. But it's believed that Matthew's lineage of Jesus follows his bloodline through Joseph, and Luke's lineage follows it through Mary. And if you read them carefully, they have a common ancestor a few generations back, which means peasant girl Mary, guess what? She's also royalty. What else is Mary? Who is she related to? Who's her cousin? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. What is Elizabeth? Priestly. Priestly. So what is Mary? Priestly. She's priestly and royal. Isn't that convenient? God would work that way. So we're introduced to a couple who is priestly. 
We're introduced to a second couple, Mary and Joseph, who is royal. And then the last big movement, we'll get to it in a second, is the presentation of Jesus in the temple. After the nativity, after he is born, 40 days later, they present Jesus in the temple to God and say, this is ultimately your son, not ours. And who's standing at the temple? Two people, a guy named Simeon and a woman named Anna. Do you know who they are or what they do? They're prophets. So who is our Shakespearean cast of characters announcing Jesus? Priests, prophets, and kings. A couple of priests, prophets, and kings announcing the priest, prophet, and king. And one more thing, and I'll turn it back over to Father Peter. And this is the thing that I think is going to frame the rest of kind of where we're going with this. This is the backdrop. There's a lot of background, but it's really good stuff. Luke knows what he's doing, and he's got a very purposeful way of laying out his gospel. There's three major movements in the nativity story. There's the Annunciation to Zechariah, that John the Baptist. There's the Annunciation to Mary, that Jesus. And then there's the presentation in the temple. I'm sorry, and then there's the birth, of course. I guess there's four movements. The Annunciation to Zechariah, Annunciation to Mary, the birth of Jesus itself, and then the presentation in the temple. Luke is, does anyone know what Luke's job was before he became a follower of Jesus and wrote a gospel? He was a physician, he was a doctor, the beloved physician. Which means that Luke is scientifically minded, which means he's probably mathematically minded and scientifically minded, which means that nothing in his gospel is probably haphazard. It's very purposeful, it's thought out, and it's systematic. Luke gives you a couple of movements of what's going on. And you might say that there's a coincidence going on here, but I really don't think that there is. So I'm going to propose something to you, and maybe you've heard this before. Luke gives you a time frame. Those major movements that he goes through in the book are all based on a specific time frame. So if you take the beginning of the Gospel of Luke as sort of day one of the Gospel, remember the Gospel set out as a narrative. Every good teaching is a story. It's a narrative, right? This narrative begins when Zechariah is in the temple and the angel Gabriel appears to him. This is day one of the narrative. Let's just say that. So here's Zechariah on day one. The next kind of road marker in the Gospel of Luke comes in chapter 1, verse 26. And it kind of comes out of nowhere. And if you're not ready for it, you might not know what it's related to. But randomly, seemingly randomly, chapter 1, verse 26, when the angel appears to Mary, it says in the sixth month. And you might be tempted to ask, well, the sixth month of what? The sixth month from when? What do you think it's the sixth month of? Zechariah and Elizabeth's pregnancy. I think he's taking you through the narrative. Six months from this point. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they conceived John the Baptist somewhere around here. We're not being exact, but Luke is trying to get you thinking in a certain way. When we move forward, the next annunciation, the annunciation to Mary, is six months in. Now, I know our calendar year, what is it, the 30th of November, and tomorrow's the 1st of December, right? I was having a hard time because my daughter was saying something was happening on the 1st. And I was trying to think in my head, I was like, wait a second, does November have 31 or 30 days? Or is it 29 for some reason? Our calendar's weird. And as Father Peter and I have been going through some of this stuff, we realize just how weird our calendar is. The Jewish calendar, way more simple. Every month has exactly 30 days. Easy. Easy to deal with, right? So if we're six months into the story, how many days are we? Wow, you guys are quick with math. So at this point... We are 180 days into the story. You following me so far? Does this make sense? We're 180 days into the story. Mary is pregnant. 
She, is, she concedes Jesus at this point. The next movement is the nativity itself. When Jesus is born. How long does a pregnancy usually take? Nine about nine months. Again, I know there's some flexibility here, but about nine months, right? So if every month, in the Jewish calendar at least, has 30 days, what's nine times 30? 270. 270. So 270 days later, we're here. Now, what if you add up? 180 days plus 270 days. What day does the nativity take place on? 450. Well, that's anticlimactic, right? <laughs> but that's not the last movement, because there's one more couple that has to announce Jesus, which is Anna and Simeon at the temple, at the presentation. This is the moment. Yes, he's born here, but then he's presented before God. And when he goes to the temple, both Simeon and Anna say, now is the moment. This is what we've been waiting for. Remember, Simeon says, now I can go in peace, for my eyes have beheld what you have set out to do. Now is the moment. When does the presentation happen? 40 exactly 40 days later. Where does Luke culminate his story? Day number... Oh. <laughs> Day number 490. Luke makes a point. I know it's embedded. It's, on, it's in between the lines. But I think Luke makes a point to lay out his whole narrative over the course of exactly 490 days. Because he does not want you to miss this prophecy is coming true. This prophecy is being fulfilled. The birth of this baby, this marks the end of exile. This marks the forgiveness of sins. This marks the coming in of righteousness, the setting things right of God. This marks the moment that the world is changing. So at that point, I think I'll toss it back to you. Luke loves inversions. He likes to take the, um, the lowliest and make it exalted. And, and Mag uh, Mary's Magnificat, uh, she sings the profound praises after she encounters Elizabeth. And she talks about how the Lord takes down the mighty and lifts up the lowly. He, he makes those who are uh, filled with all food languish and those who are hungry, they are filled. And so uh, it's, it's, just, it's just so beautiful. And Looking at that, I just, isn't it fascinating to see that 70 weeks of years? Um, no wonder we're throwing in the word week. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of times um, Hebrew is rich, so it's going to have more meaning than just the very surface meaning that we see. It's going to have a lot more context. And so now all of a sudden this 490 is like, it's really inspiring. But where are those 490 days? We believe as, as, uh, from the depths of our being that as a church, as a believing people, that Jesus Christ occurred within history, within time. He walked as one of us. He breathed the same air. The Jordan that he was baptized in, that water is still flowing around the world. That water exists. He, he, came, he, like, he actually took soil and was made into his body. All of the nutrients that Mary gave him a real body within real time. So this, for us, is like a really radical question. When were those 490 years? 
What Artaxerxes? What was it? Who is Artaxerxes? Who, the Artaxerxes first. the first. We we can actually date from that point, 458 BC. Which, by the way, when we transition from BC into AD, we don't go into zero. Zero was not introduced as a concept until much later in history. So we just flip flop right back over. So we can look, and wouldn't it be interesting if? it would actually coordinate that moment of history where we see Artaxerxes the first, and then all of a sudden we end up at a really interesting place, maybe at the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, 490 years later in time. We can look and we can say, okay, let's get some numbers. You know, okay, 490 years, now all of a sudden we're at the crucifixion. And we know that, um, you know, there's two times in which um, we have um, uh, uh, the Friday of the crucifixion, Good Friday, takes place within Nisan 14. Nisan 14 would be the, the date of Passover. So we know we can choose between very, two very specific dates if you compare the, the ancient Hebrew calendar and the Gregorian calendar. And you end up with April 3rd, uh, 33 AD, or April 7th, 30 AD. So, you, so scholars have to look and you say, okay, well, how do we root that really in something else? And that is where we look to stellar events. Because this is what's so complicated about what we're studying. I got on a website to try to figure out, okay, what is the drift uh, between uh, the Hebrew calendar, which is primarily lunar but has solar elements in it, and our very bizarre Gregorian calendar? How do you calculate them so that we can actually get exact dates throughout time? And it is really mathematical. I think Gary is the only guy here who would really like that. I'm just kidding. Gary, Gary, not even Gary. Okay, maybe we have some other mathematicians. But I was looking at these things, and they were entirely unintelligible to me. And so I said, man, I, I, I'm more simple than this. And I, so if I'm simple, we have to ask this question of other people who spend their lives thinking and studying. And you can't help but end up with a very interesting couple in the 1500s, right after we have the Protestant Reformation. We have a couple of very interesting men, Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler. Uh, Tycho Brahe, he, uh, th we, these are men who are astronomers, but there was no distinction in the time uh, between astronomy and astrology. If you were studying and engaging with the stars, you were engaged in future prediction. You were trying to make predictions about the world. That is what you did. Tycho Brahe was a weird dude. <laughs> For any of you who have studied Tycho Brahe, this guy, um, he domesticated a moose. <laughs> and, and, um, and so he, he would, um, this moose would like go and hang out until one time um, he actually lent it to another guy in the aristocracy. He said, oh yeah, you can borrow my moose. And so <laughs> this guy got the moose drunk and then it was go going all over the place until it fell down the stairs and died. So his domesticated moose period was, was over at that point. But Tycho, Tycho Brahe had this- Moral uh, is never loan out your moose to the aristocracy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, was, I wanted to bring some Moose Drool beer here just so that we could drink it tonight. If you haven't had that, it's good Montana beer. Um, and what, what's happening is that Tycho Brahe says, let's get empirical. Let's stop having fuzzy measurements. Let's get precise. But we don't have optical instruments. So he was really the last great astronomer that used the naked eye to do astronomy. He's going along and he's, he, like, he's, he actually even got like an island and he got like a hundred people and he gathered a school around himself and he's like measuring things, but the towers swayed too much on this building. So he built an underground observatory and he had built a paper mill so that he could distribute his findings. And uh, the Copernican revolution had just taken place. And so Tycho is here and he's saying, gosh, that really makes a lot of sense. But I still think he's, he's, he's like, because um, basically you have two main theories. You have the Aristotelian theory, which says that all of the, uh, all of the bodies that are past the moon are fixed. They are in the same places. Even so, the, the planets in there are these crazies, but they, crazy things, but they are there in a fixed way. Copernicus, Copernicus comes along and says, no, no, of course the, the sun is at the center. And Tycho says, no, let's accept the fact that there are movable bodies. Let's reject Aristotelian cosmology. And let's get into this, but the earth is still fixed. So Tycho started coming up with his own kind of theories and he tried to make sense of them because nobody was making sense of this. But he was meticulous in making observations. He had the absolute best of the data of, of, in the 15, late 1500s. So he's going along. And there is, uh, a, a, and he's crazy. He like gets into fights. If you guys know this, he got into a fight and somebody chopped the end of his nose off. <laughs> and so he had, uh, he had a, a gold silver prosthetic nose that he wore and a gigantic mustache, which I am still envious of. If you guys just look him up on Wikipedia. So here's, here's Tycho and he, he's, doing, he's doing great stuff, but he's, a, he's kind of a cantankerous guy and secretive does not want to give his data away. It doesn't want, I mean, his data was the most precious thing. And so he was kind of domineering in the school of 100 people and he got everybody to do all these things. And then you have this other man, Johannes Kepler. And Johannes Kepler was uh, really faithful. He loved God. He just loved God. And uh, was uh, studying to be a minister in seminary and was going through classical studies. Uh, and it turned out that he had a, really a propensity for math. He just was able to really crunch numbers. And he did it so well that he actually got, uh, rather than becoming a minister after he graduated school, he got invited to become a math teacher. And so he's going along and he, he, he's looking and he says, he like would look up into the stars and he's, he, his whole thing was is that this all gives glory to God. There is, um, um, uh, yeah, um, that Psalm 18 is, my, is like my very favorite psalm. And I just want to read this to you because uh, I, I really think that in, in the deepest sense that uh, in some of your Bibles, this will be Psalm 19. Um, there's a strange uh, Hebrew numbering that will be odd. So, um, 
So I can imagine Johannes Kepler singing this to himself uh, as, as, he, as he was going along doing mathematics. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pour forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has, sent a tent, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes forth like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The heavens proclaim the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth the work of his hands. I think that he started to get really intrigued and is trying to work out, and he loved geometric figures, and he loved making models, and so he started building geometric figures and putting them and noticed that, that uh, from his observations that they kind of coordinated in some of the similar ways in which the plan, planets were actually working with each other. And he starts to devise these theories, and he says, oh my goodness, like, let's figure out how these work, because he was, a, he, he was convinced in his senior year of college that to be a, a Copernican, you know. Like, I mean, this stuff is real. I love saying it this way, and I say it this way, because, friends, we are real. We are friends with Tycho and Copernicus and, uh, and, and Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah, we exist in the same spiritual reality as them. We are human beings and we share life. And so sometimes because of, of this technological breakdown that we experience, even from the 60s and the turn of the, revo uh, turn, the uh, industrial revolution, the turn of the century, and we, we, in the turn of the millennia, sometimes we, we can separate ourselves because of electric light or something, saying, no, like senior year in college, this guy was convinced of a, an amazing theory. And he's, he was a strict Copernican. And so he's going along and he's trying to figure out how to make it, how to, how to make these planets make sense. And he, and of course, Tycho Brahe is like the, he's publishing, he's all over the place. And he says, I want to get together with this guy. And he goes and he, and, and he realizes that he can't use his data. It's going to take him years to do his calculations using this amazing data, but he would just give him a little bit at a time. A little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And he tried, he said, he said, you know what, you just need to hire me. I have a family, I need to do this. Um, and, and meanwhile, he's experiencing religious persecution. The Catholics are saying, convert or you can't be around. He's experiencing um, hardships within his family. Like, like uh, Johannes Kepler just, he just gets downtrodden. He is beat up left and right constantly. And here he goes and he's with like Mr. Bully Man, Tycho Brahe. And he's like, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of data. And then he says, well, then give me, give me a job. I've got so much great work I can do using your data. And he's like, yeah, no, until, the, until he actually moves away. And he goes and, and, and Tycho keeps bugging him and says, please give me, you know, hire me. Let me do this work. I can do amazing things. And he sees and so he goes and he gets, uh, and finally Tycho and him work out a decent salary so that he could support his family and do the science that he knows. Because he's like, I need to prove the, the, these orbits of the planets and you've measured it. 
within one degree, by the way, which is pretty phenomenal for those of you who know astronomy. He actually has all of these measurements. So he's going along, and he starts studying it. Well, thanks be to God, uh, Tycho Brahe dies. <laughs> um, because of his secrecy and his lockdown and his inability to share and to let anything actually go out, that he had totally stifled Johannes Kepler. Now, here's the thing, is that there was a big mystery. Did Johannes Kepler poison Tycho Brahe? <laughs> this is like, I mean, this is like science drama <laughs> for all time. <laughs> I mean, like, and Galileo was weighing in, and he didn't even, he didn't like what, um, what Kepler was doing either. So, like, he's getting trashed by Galileo, by the Catholics, by the Protestants. His family is suffering, and Tycho Brahe is, like, beating him up. So, of course, he would poison him. <laughs> Actually, in 2010, they exhumed the body of Tycho Brahe. And went and they, was, because basically what happened is he got a bladder infection, and he, and, and he couldn't pee. Um, and they thought that it was mercury poisoning, and so they so because that because that can actually happen. So they went in forensic analysis. They took all the measurements, and they dis decided conclusively that Tycho Brahe was not poisoned. <laughs> he was not killed by Johannes Kepler. <laughs> Which let, let's just be honest, it's really good. We want to we want to have that because because like um, in a certain sense, Luke is pointing us to this, this reality that um, the unexpected is always going to happen. The lowly will be lifted up. The lowly will be lifted up. And sometimes in our lives, it's just like, how long, O oh Lord, will you make your people suffer and no longer go forth with our armies? We pray the prayer of Daniel. We pray the prayer of Zechariah. We pray the prayer of Mr. Kepler, Johannes Kepler. How long, O oh Lord, will we have to suffer these things? Well, this, he, he goes along, and get, he, he's a faithful man. He, he's saying that the heavens are proclaiming the glory of God. And he says, I'm going to find the star of Bethlehem. Let's root this in space. Let's root this in time. Let's take this reality. So he goes and he says, oh man, who is the most, the most worthy historian that can get me into the, uh, into the, to the, uh, the first century in Israel. And of course, we know who that is. Do you guys know who that is? Josephus. So jo he's Josephus. Who is Josephus again? The Jewish, <laughs> the Jewish historian from the first century. Absolutely, Jewish historian first century. He gives more details where I don't have them. So, um, but he, so he wrote down um, when Herod died, because if you look in, in the Gospel of Matthew, you, you, Jesus and Herod are going to have to overlap. We said, we said Herod's not a great guy. He started going into this. And so he's looking around and he's starting to read this Josephus. He, he's reading Josephus. And what happens? And he, there's the, the printing press is out, and so he gets a copy of Josephus from his local library. And it says that Herod dies, according to Josephus, in 5 B.C. 5 B.C. And he says, okay, sweet. 
Now you have to remember, he you can calculate using the laws of planetary motion, which he discovers using the data of Tycho Brahe and these amazing insights that he's had using the Copernican revolution and heliocentrism and this elliptical orbit of planets. So he can figure it all out. We still use them today. So he figures, that, he's looking and he figures all this stuff out. And so he starts making star charts and he's looking for astronomical events from seven, it's at 8 to 5 BC. And he finds really nothing. <laughs> and he keeps pounding his head for years. Now he does other amazing, profound work, but he doesn't find anything. What an underwhelming class. So thanks for coming tonight. <laughs> Here's a man downtrodden, works all of his life, has one mission, has all the skills, all the data, all the tools to be able to accomplish it and doesn't and dies. <laughs> That's like hard. How long, oh Lord? How long, oh Lord? Um, well, we fast forward and we get into our age now. And we have the completion of uh, this this day's class because we have figured out using the scholarship that's widely available that Josephus wasn't a printed book originally and we and, and some scholars started asking the same questions and said like when this Herod event is essential it's essential when Herod dies because if Herod dies then we, uh, uh, we have to have Jesus born before Herod dies because that is the historical record. So they were looking around and they started looking in the manuscripts, just the handwritten versions that are in, written in shorthand Latin. Very hard to read, very hard to, to manage and navigate. Because like, you, you, when you write celibus, uh, which would be like the heavens, in a manuscript form, because the parchment's so expensive, you shorthand everything. So you'd, you'd go C-O-E with two dashes. So they don't, they don't actually decline and conjugate the words in manuscript form. You have to have good enough Latin to go back and to be able to make intelligible the, for, the declensions and the forms merely by the way that people put them together. So you have to transliterate them and then translate them. Super hard. So, those, so the, that's why everybody relies on all of these printed versions of this because it's transliterated and transcribed and they have paper, not parchment. Well, they come back. And they look and they go and they say, okay, here we are. And they find in the manuscript tradition that one of the typesetters, the original typesetter for the printed version of Josephus's history made a typo. <laughs> Straight up. The dude was dozing, he, you know, maybe he, he drank a little bit more than his allotted portion of wine that was given to him for the day, and he put in five, and where the manuscript tradition, going all the way back as early as we can find, puts Herod's date of death at 1 BC. If Kepler would have had that information, we would have figured out and found the star way before. Now, in 1604, Kepler um, found there was a supernova. 
And the, the strange thing about Kepler is that past the solar system, he believe, still believed in the Aristotelian uh, unchanging heavens. So nothing changes. In 1604, he sees the, a supernova, which is basically a, uh, a, a super bright star, but then gets confused because it, it fades. So he starts to ask the question, well, what it, maybe it was a supernova. What is, like, what is this? And he gets confused. And in fact, in popular memory, because of the difficulty of trying to discover where it is, he gave up the fight. We, uh, and, and culturally, we also have given up the fight. I uh, love the fact that the Lord sends little things. Um, there was a, a man, uh, Dr. Larson, he was a lawyer, sorry, uh, this lawyer, um, Richard Larson, I think it's Richard, um, uh, don't quote me on that, but his, his last name is Larson. And he, uh, he started asking the same questions because somebody asked him to teach about the nativity story for his Bible class, for his Bible study. And they said, hey, would you teach about that? And then all of a sudden he became obsessed. And he was like, what is the star? What is the star? And he came up with really, really beautiful evidence in 3 and 2 B.C., to show us what the star is. And that, my friends, is going to be how we get into space next week. And we're going to look, and then we're going to ask this question of 490 years. We're going to ask this question of Arxaxerxes, Arx the, the, the first. Um, <laughs> and we're going to ask the question of this 490 years. 490, we, 70 weeks of years. And we're going to ask ourselves the question, can we find this now? Because if we find this now, what we discover is that Jesus Christ is rooted in history. That this event is real. That this is not something made up. That we're not living in some time where we can just give it up to Bible land. But that in fact we have a real historical record. A real quantitative and qualitative expression of the salvation that God has offered. And that is the most exciting of all. And so I'm sorry to be such a teaser and a cliffhanger, but you know you're coming back next week. <laughs> because what Scott and I have found is something that the scholars have not looked at. The scholars have not actually considered how Luke weighs into the reality of this. Most of them just look at trying to proof text from the Gospel of Matthew because it speaks about where the star is and the Magi. Whereas Luke has something very, very new for us. So thank you. I think that um, we can... Um, do you have any final comments? I just think you should give... I mean, I know we're not going to show the whole thing, but... You want a what teaser? we're going to propose next week... And this is Father Peter's... The brilliant, the masterstroke that he's working on. <laughs> taking what we're going to propose and just we really do want you guys to come back because this is the setup what we're going to try to look at is not only these 490 years but in those 490 days from when we think Zechariah is standing in the temple to the time that Jesus is presented in the temple what is happening in the sky what is actually happening in the stars and how does that coalesce in the star of Bethlehem and what other things are actually speaking to this which is really really cool which which may actually be a new moment of theology
a new moment that we can share and make a journal article with and get lots of angry emails from astrologers. <laughs> so those 490 days, can we find events, stellar events, that actually speak to what they are? I propose that we have. <laughs> Very good. Thank you.